Welcome to the first ever Felicity First Dates podcast, where we bring artists together for the first time over dinner and wine and force them to talk to each other about their work. <gasps> the menu tonight was avocado pasta, cheap wine from the Apple Green Next Door, and I'm joined with Zav D'Souza, a performance artist from Queensborough, Portugal, and currently residing in Brighton. Yep. Andre Neely, they're an artist from Lisbon, based in Berlin. And this is their first time collaborating together on Regnant as part of Live Collision, but they are long-time friends. And we're also joined by Fanula Gigax, an actor, director, and writer from Dublin. Um, I'm Aileen Ryan, and I'll be your host for this evening. Mm. This podcast Mm. is brought to you by Felicity Theatre. And so, yeah, so to begin with, I guess, maybe if we go around and introduce ourselves, I don't know if if you want to tell us a bit about yourself and maybe your background in the arts. Sure. I'm Fanula. Um, I've lived in Dublin my whole life, except for a little excursion in January. I went and studied in Paris for two months. That's the most exciting thing that I've done in terms of traveling. Um, I studied uh, theatre in Trinity, so I got into theatre quite young. I kind of knew from a really young age that I wanted to be uh, an actor, performer, and um, I always loved writing, making stuff. and. Um, got involved as a teenager and knew that that was the path I wanted, went to Trinity with the guys here and uh, studied drama and theatre studies and there I kind of got involved in making my own work, um, so writing and devising, so I love devising uh, as well, um, so making work collaboratively. So I'm out of college three years now and I've made some works and I've a lot of shows kind of in development, so kind of doing that balance of being in other people's stuff and making my own work. Um, kind of want to make work I don't know if I've done it yet but that's experimental uh, in, in, in form but that's also um, somewhat socially conscious or that begins at a point of wanting to explore something that's uh, happening now or contemporary I think uh, so yeah that's me um, and so Zav and Andre obviously you're friends but um, haven't always worked with each other and now collaborating mm. Yeah. Have you? Did you get into the arts separately, or was it always together? We've been together since we were twelve years old. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, it's very recent, actually. It's very recent. Yeah, really. Yeah, um, we only met like three, four years ago. Yeah, just like about that. Yeah, yeah. And so we only met in London. Yeah. Um. Even though we're both from Portugal. Yeah. Through some friends, and then there's been a couple of crossover projects. So yeah, uh, Andre was. Um, I used to work as a as a producer sometimes as well, and. Andrew was part of a collective that I, whose work I produced for this one show, um, and two shows, something else. No, one show. Yeah, and then we worked for Cut Festival with yes. you as well. Um, and I think that was it. I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. But we started, yeah, separately. I started. I moved to the UK in two thousand. I'm really old, sorry. Um, so 2005, uh, beforehand, I lived in a very rural town outside of Coimbra in Portugal called Montemar. And that town has a, a, the... Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God, this is like um, just our dinner table conversation. But it has the oldest performance art festival in Europe. And I'm not joking. It's called Sitamard. And like every like nothing happens in, this, in, the, in the village throughout the year apart from two months of the summer where artists from across the world come and reside in the village and build the shows there. And we, they do it in fields and abandoned houses and all that. We have a little theatre in the village, but we don't actually use it for the festival, apart from, like, the party at the end of the festival. Wow. So I grew up with that. And I came to... I went to England to... Um, to study drama, because I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> um, and I very quickly realised that not my call um and then I was like oh yeah no totally I want to be experimental um and I started to I finished graduate I graduated from Kingston University and then I I was very lucky to start uh working straight away in the arts there but yeah it was very separately from yeah you I mean yeah I only um so I'm also from Portugal but uh mostly lived in Lisbon till I was 18 uh and then I moved to London in 2012 yeah yeah 2012 um i also wanted to be an actor <laughs> yeah <laughs> i feel like a lot of people in live art just like yeah. started out there wanting to be actors um doesn't work so we go to live art <laughs> 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 um 
yeah, so I moved to London because I wanted to be an actor, and then I also got tired of it quite quickly, um, and then moved on into thinking that I wanted to be a playwright, um, and I read a play, we took it to Edinburgh, um, and then I realised I hated plays, <laughs> um, and then I went to uni and I did this live art course for three years in London, um, and I got more into like live art and sort of experimental choreography, um, um, and since then I've been mostly... Yeah, mostly like working in other people's projects as a dancer and performer um, and kind of doing some writing on the side and kind of like understanding um, where my work fits or like what medium my work takes um, in different ways. Um, yeah, and yeah, I lived in London for five years and I'm based in Berlin now. So you're both um, collaborating on Regnant, yeah. um, which is this weekend in Life Collision. Maybe if you want to tell us a bit about that or what it's like working together having been friends for a little while <laughs> um sure so um the show is uh, a, f- a a durational uh theater a play in four acts um and it's sort of it's very new to us um and it's a, it's a collaborative process between us and the audience and making the piece together as we go along so it's four hours long and um it sort of revolves around a, a dinner table setting um, and there's three, there's six seats at the table, three of them are curated and three of them are open to anyone from the audience to come and join. And our job is to make people uh, comfortable in the room uh, and feel welcomed and feel represented and seen and heard. Um, and the sort of show explores the, uh, constant, the idea of this uh, privilege of this course so uh who has a seat at the table you know the whole saying and all that but uh specifically when it when we're talking about um discourse mainstream discourse around migration national identity and belonging um when we're defining these concepts and these themes and these having these conversations who has the privilege to lead these conversations you know so we want to deconstruct that a little bit um and provoke discourse between people who often are in positions of privilege to have these conversations um also with people who don't always have that privilege um but allowing them the space to do so and also us as artists um you know, coming from um england from portugal then to england then to ireland in dublin and opening the theater space which is a, pl- a space of extreme privilege uh, in many ways and trying to open it to uh, people who don't have access to hosting events like the one that we're hosting um, so it's uh, very layered but it's a traditional piece and uh, so mine and Andre's uh, role within that is to facilitate the conversation and but also to make sure that the that people feel like they have the space and the autonomy to um, respond to the provocations that we're going to put to the table as they wish to do. And also, like I think, um, like two reasons that um, I was really excited about working with Zav in this um, is because well, point one, I've been following Zav's practice for a while as a friend and quite closely, and seeing the shows and like seeing what Zav's up to. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is this idea that like um, when you're approaching migration and national identity um, that we're both from the same country and we both migrated to the same country so like mm. we both went from Portugal to the UK mm. um, and kind of feeling or like seeing how different our experiences have been and also like how different our experience of being Portuguese are which I yeah. don't feel any connection with um, and having our different experience of national identity in terms of where we were born uh, but also because, um, like, even, like, when I moved to the UK, even before I started uni or I started thinking more about doing performance or whatever, I was always quite in, quite um, involved with different activist circles and working a lot in that area and doing a lot of grassroots work um, more than I was doing performance. Um, and I know that Zav uh, recently-ish started, like, getting more into that area or doing more mm. of that work. Mm. And I think that's really important when um trying to make work like the work that Zav's doing and open up spaces because the best thing that we can do is actually going to grassroots movement rather than like working within from institutions mm-hmm. so that's the thing that i think i connected quite a lot with this project mm-hmm. where or with the development of your practice mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, and I think that comes across in the way that you hold the room and in the way that the show holds the conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. Or maybe not. <laughs> 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 so. Tune in on Saturday. Vanilla, <laughs> <laughs> like so obviously we're doing a lot about privilege, and um, mm. but you also wrote a show about um, Hostel Sixteen, which was in was it last year's Fringe or the year before? It was the year before. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's about direct provision system, which is in Ireland. I don't know, maybe if you want to talk about that. Yep. Um, so I'm not sure if you would know what direct provision is. No, I was just about um, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so direct provision is uh, when migrants come to Ireland looking for refugee status. There's been a system in place since the year 2000 called direct provision. And um, basically the government um, found different disused hostels, hotels and mobile homes around the country um, and set up this system where... Um, families and individuals would go and live in these um hostels which was meant to be a temporary situation for a couple of months until they were given status refugee status um and there's certain rules and it's there's a lot of rules in place uh they get 19 euro a week um per individual and i can't remember the price has gone up for the child it used to be 960 i think and i think now it could be 13 something but for a week and you are expected to live on that um, as a family so that's including school books and uniforms and um, anything but food so you're given three meals a day but uh, there are the times and place in which you have to be there for those meals and you're not allowed to cook your own food um, so just like basic human privileges mm-hmm. um, taken away and uh, there's a lot of mental health problems and basically so what was meant to be a temporary situation has ended up that people have been in that system for you know I don't even know what the longest person is now but certainly over 10 years and there's been children born in the system and children who've grown up not knowing and there's also kind of a big corruption of the people who own the the hostels and everything they make a huge profit so massive massive profit and yet people are living in very very um dysfunctional like a lot of different nationalities living in 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 the same room and and people squash into one room like a whole family living in one room so no privacy anyway so that's kind of the the background of what direct provision is that's actually a good question is it a, a government program or is it a private program it's well the the it's a private investors who own the i think the government runs it but it's all private investors who own all the um who own all the centers but another thing about centers a lot of them are in um kind of uh areas out in their own so some of them are integrated like there's some in Galway so they're all over the country but a lot of them are kind of in these hidden areas so people don't actually know they exist and there, so there's no community around so it's just this isolated area with all of these people living in it so basically when I was in college um I did playwriting in college, I was writing a play in college and I hated it, I thought it was boring and I didn't like it at all and um, <laughs> and coming up to the deadline I decided I wasn't going to write that play anymore and similarly around that time, so I think it was, <laughs> what was it? it was just like a family drama about women in a sitting room and it wasn't, it was boring and I never liked it but I think it was fate because I decided not to write it very close to the deadline, I think it was two weeks before and we'd meant to be working on it for like 12 weeks. So I terrified my playwriting teacher and rebelled and said, I'm not writing the play anymore. And I'd written loads of it. And I was yeah, like, system. I said, I'm writing something else. And yeah. she was like, what are you writing about? And I was like, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have any idea. But then a few days later, I um, heard a, an interview with someone in direct provision. I'd heard what direct, about direct provision, but I didn't actually know what it was. So I heard a woman speak and I, and I thought, oh, I, I've heard of that. And, and I listened to her and I then, you know, heard and I was like god it sounds really horrific so I researched more and then I decided I was going to write my play about that so I wrote a play quite fast initially which is called Seekers like Asylum Seekers and then I changed the name to Hostel 16 because I made it in the year 2016 so I've been in place for 16 years and um, so I wrote the play thought it was the worst thing of all time I was really embarrassed handing it in but I spoke intra and maybe a point that's interesting to talk about as well. Like when I wrote it, um, the initial I wrote two scenes, and I brought them into class, and I felt very guilty because I didn't feel that I'd write, write about this. 
because it was, wasn't in terms of representation. So that could be something that's interesting. Um, and my playwriting teacher, uh, Melissa Sierra, said, no, no, keep writing it, it's important, keep writing it. So I wrote the play, she was very fond of the play, Melissa gave me good feedback, and that spurred me on to develop it. So we developed it over a year, I got a bursary, uh, not a bursary, a mentorship uh, with a company called Druid in Galway for three days, five days, sorry, and developed it and then put it in for Fringe. So it was in the Dublin Fringe Festival. So there was 11 people in the cast. It was a tricky process, always in terms of that representation and how we did it and which form it took and everything. But um, I suppose the intent of the play was to highlight the issue to other Irish people because so many people didn't know that it existed at all. So that was kind of the intent behind the play and hopefully uh, it kind of did that. I mean, you're never going to please anyone, but I... I think it kind of managed to do that and expose something that was happening in, and it's still happening in Ireland. So that's Hostel 16. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think well. definitely, you know, you did successfully um, inform a lot of people definitely about it. But I suppose what another thing to talk about, you know, we've all talked about privilege and what it's like, you know, writing plays or producing work when we're not necessarily from the marginalised groups that of the work that we are created or um we're not necessarily from the groups um who the work is work about. about. Yeah. So I suppose maybe like how did that influence your you've just briefly spoke about but like how did yeah. that influence your final, I suppose, text um, or performance? Was, like what did you it do really to that? influenced it, but it was a very, very stressful mm-hmm. process and ones that I've still even sometimes have tugs of God, was it the right thing? Even though I know the way we did it was the right thing, the most truthful way of presenting the material. When I wrote the play, it was essentially, I felt compelled to write it, but, you know, it wasn't that I imagined it was going to be in the fringe and on a stage. So I wrote it, an imagined version of what direct provision was through, I didn't interview people, it wasn't a documentary piece. Um, I researched as much as I could and imagined what the life within a direct provision system would be. And... Um, so then the a big kind of issue that came up as we were making it then was, well, who's going to be in the cast and how do we navigate that? Because, and there was all these issues and there still is of, because my words were fictional and I was creating a fictional situation. It wasn't the reality of what direct provision is. It was fictional and it was, um, you know, false really, but it it still gave information, but it was false. So it felt like, because we had talked about, um, you know, do we have people from direct provision on stage? And then it felt like, well, we can't, because if they're on stage, they have to tell their own stories. So it's, they can't tell this story because it's fake and you've written this thing. And and then we thought, well, do we need a whole cast of colour? And then there's a whole question there, well, are you just using that because... Um, it feels it's a politically incorrect thing, correct thing to do, but there's a lot of white people in direct provision as well. So there was all these issues. So basically what ended up kind of being an inspiration or it, what felt like the right form was that we presented it as an imagined direct provision that Irish people are in, so that it's Irish people you see in the situation. So we had a cast of um, Irish people played out like it was, you know, that it was Irish people in the situation and um and found it and we all used our own names and found it to be mm-hmm. effective and i think i'm sure some people you know there's issues with there was always going to be issues in any way that we did it um but basically what it was showing was that it could be us it's an irish story it's happened to irish people in the past in history mm-hmm. that they've been you know treated badly and and this could be us and so it was putting giving Irish audiences a chance maybe an opportunity to imagine themselves in the situation and not view it as the other um Mm. but it was a very hard process in terms of Mm. trying to be make the correct decision on that Mm -hmm. um I think it was the correct decision in terms of what the play was and what the form needed but it wasn't an easy um process in terms of trying to figure that out Mm. But it's also like, um, I feel like when you talk about representation, um, it's always much more fruitful to look at the person rather than the work. Because I think like um, you see a lot of, or I see a lot of artists kind of like blaming themselves from works that they've done when they were younger, Mm. that they find they're problematic or they find that in terms of representation that wasn't accurate or that it wasn't fair for them or that they weren't in a place to represent that issue or that minority or whatever um but i actually think it's much more 
um, of an holistic thing of how you lead your life and the things that you're interested in and how you're critically thinking about that issue and the work that you've made Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah fine like you've put something out there and like maybe you're not 100% happy about it or maybe like there's some issues with it that you still recognize but it all comes from like how you're engaging with the issue in general or like how you're raising that awareness or how you're going to develop that in the future because it's like I mean I think it's totally fine for people to make mistakes and we all make mistakes or like we all try and like we all try and like obviously like make as less mistakes as we can but like it's always going to happen and especially tackling like quite sensitive subjects like that um but I think it's much more about looking holistically at a person and see like how you're fighting for those issues and like what your other work is artistically or whatever wise Mm -hmm. and how you're relating to those issues and how much you're dedicating to it rather than like to one particular yeah piece of work that you've developed yeah Um, and I think it's about intent as well I think if you have a truthful and honest intent of what you want the work to do and you follow through on that yeah I think that's important and I think I think I I think we did that you know what we wanted to do I think we achieved but it's just it's always with representation it's always tricky especially when those sort of subjects Mm -hmm. well representation is a tricky thing isn't it I was having a chat with Jun Lin from from Ivy from Mm -hmm. In Between uh, Time Festival well used to be from In Between Time Festival (laughs) now she's freelance um Uh, and we were talking about this because I'm very interested in uh, the idea of representation but not necessarily just how representation is about people telling a specific story that is already attributed to them so in terms of like when you look at people from a specific community uh, when it comes to the arts community we always kind of go hey my one should talk about their hardships and their experience for instance like (laughs) Mm -hmm. actually no these are people as well you know what I mean Mm -hmm. actually so Mm -hmm. perhaps providing looking at the idea of representation uh, in inverted commas inverted commas is that how you say in English (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, it's I think it's more fruitful (laughs) for us to think about yes representation of peoples and communities but beyond the single narrative of 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 that community yeah I mean you can make work about whatever exactly yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's like that's one of the most annoying things isn't it it's because like you get you get like put in a box as a migrant and like people are expecting you to make work about migration or you get put in a box as like a POC and you're expected to make work about that or queer or whatever it's interesting because around that time I felt a huge pressure because um there was a lot of any press before the show came out or interviews or any um in f- profiles on me coming up to the show all were saying political artist and I and I was going oh god it's my first show mm. actually it's my first professional yeah. show yeah and I'm suddenly a political artist and I haven't don't want to be a political art because yeah. not all the work I want yeah. to make is going to be as yeah. in I think all work is inherently political yeah. <laughs> and that one had a specific like that was a political where it was challenging something that I thought was a problem but I, I hope there's going to be dozens more shows that won't and are yeah. looking at it way more from our artistic um, point of view and how informed. So I felt very overwhelmed by mm. this political artist yeah. um, stamp that I got. Now, I think it's it's kind of gone, but mm. it wasn't. It was the very scary of how quick yeah, of um, you get branded and yeah. put in a box of this yeah. is the artist People you are. People need to frame you as something. That's it. Like... It's more about other people than about yeah. what you're doing. Like, yeah. this is what I found. is mm-hmm. like, people want to catch you because they can say, oh, uh, he does that. Mm-hmm. Like, he does this. And so that it allows people to be more comfortable with the idea of you. Yeah. So it's always about other people. Yeah, <laughs> rather than what yeah, yeah. Like, I constantly resist the idea <laughs> that I'm always going to do work about migration. Like, no, like... Art and art making is an expression of the self, right? Of the individual. And you express whatever is going to your mind. So right now, for instance, I'm doing work that is related to migration and I'm looking at ways of how to use that as a as an artistic methodology. But I hope that my next show, for instance, could mm-hmm. be something very different. Yeah. And why the fuck not? But I, I can sense already... <laughs> uh, 
that that transition is going to be harder because that's not what people expect. You're going to have that do. expectation there. Yeah, always. of course. I mean, it's also got, sorry, go. it's just just a, like a final thing. It's like it goes so many ways beyond um, how people just see you as an artist. Mm-hmm. So when I did uh, uh, the, started to do the tour for Post, which my other show, my previous show, uh, I constantly got told that. There was already a lot of uh, uh, work about migration done by um, uh, British people. I was like, I don't give a shit. Like wow. that's not that's really? not my thing. You wow. know what I mean? Like, like, I don't give a shit. Like uh, that's not my work. Like if you want the work, like program the work. Like have the fucking work. Wow. If you don't want the work, just tell me that you don't want the work. But like don't like it's not the it. My issue with with all of this 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 categorization of work or. Um, ticking mm. boxes exercises is that all of a sudden you have programmers kind of looking at work that artists are making kind of going oh well, you already have a, a piece about migration this season yeah. it's yeah. like so what like it's different like it's a new thing like it's, it's going to be ultimately very different from what else what else fucking work you you're doing five fucking musicals this season <laughs> is that a problem for you no doing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But it's also because venues also get categorized, right? Yes. It's like if they're going to program three works about migration, then people will expect that venue to continue to program work about migration. Yeah. Like it's not just artists getting categorized and yeah. fixed. Like it's everyone just gets categorized because that's yeah. the only way people understand things or like an easy way for people to understand yeah. things and manage their own expectations. Mm. Which is like, I mean, it's a wider like social thing, right? It's patriarchy. It's... heteronormativity it's like people expect you to be fixed in your identity and I think in terms of making work it comes in um, with this rise of like um, identity politics and people like taking charge of their identities and understanding Mm -hmm. their identities as a political thing Mm -hmm. I think it also affects artists in the sense that people still see identity as a fixed thing even though Mm -hmm. it isn't so therefore if you're making work about things that are within your identity people will expect that to be fixed as well. Yeah. So, like, it's a wider social thing of, like, we're all fluid and we're all going to change and we're constantly transforming and becoming yeah. and, like, our work is also doing that. But people just want you to be in a box yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, I suppose, Fanny, to distance yourself further from this political... label. I mean, like, you would consider yourself primarily, I suppose, an actor? Yeah. Um, so do you want to maybe talk about like you're currently touring or have you just finished touring? Um, I'm currently touring so we finish next week um, with a show called Toriacht, uh which is a bilingual um, comedy physical uh, <laughs> We're drinking here <laughs> um, Which is a bilingual piece directed by Michael Murphy so it's an ensemble type show using masks and uh, we all play maybe six or seven characters so it's great test of the body and uh, and yeah pushes you to kind of uh, use your skills or try to use your skills but yeah so we've gone on tour uh, to Galway, Dublin, Cork and now we're finishing in Carlo next this week next week yeah. bilingual yeah so um, it's mostly in Irish uh, and so subtitled in English mostly in Irish but there's some English scenes in it as well Mm. Yeah, so I speak Irish. I don't know if you know what that is, but um, <laughs> but I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> so eight hundred years ago, no, um, the British. No, I'm joking. No. But I yeah, going to that. <laughs> I went to an Irish primary yeah. and secondary school, and I speak fluent Irish. So there's uh, yeah, six in the cast. Really good fun. Great crack. Yeah. Good show, I think. Hopefully, not very political. Not very political. <laughs> I mean, and then you find yourself, we're like, you know, what's it really about? Because it's an Irish myth that we're doing. But you, I think you can find reason, you know, relevancies in any show. So we found our own. We'll see if audiences, what audiences think. But it's a love story, basically. And a, a tale of, you know, there's big giants and, you know, mad characters. and So it's just like entertaining and mm, fun. Yeah. Yeah. So Can I ask any questions? And I'm sorry, I'll let you go back. In no, no, no. General questions. <laughs> I'm not even here. <laughs> um, but it's just like I'm interested in the fact that uh, this is a bilingual show. You do it mostly in Irish. Yeah. Um, but you say that it's not political, and I think like actually, isn't that political? Just the, the, fact that you uh, yeah. the whole show in, in Irish. Irish. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose actually that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. But it it's funny because I've done shows in English too. But it mm. is interesting as an artist too. I've done a few things in Irish now and 
actually some of the best shows mm. or stuff that I've been in have been in Irish um, yeah. luckily just by the people who've been involved but it's interesting how audiences uh, receive or just mm. decide not to receive it because it's in Irish and they don't um, a lot of Irish people don't speak Irish or like have very limited Irish mm. do you find it's a harder sell it's such Murphy's a harder sell really? Michael Murphy who's he's a re- very renowned actor director from Ireland um and yeah so that's the sell it's a michael murphy show yeah. but if it wasn't it just i don't know it you know people just assume whatever but um that because it's an irish it's of less it's at less standard but i'm it's one of the proudest shows that i've been involved mm-hmm. in and mm-hmm. i did another thing in irish um a tv thing and it's probably the one of my proudest things as well mm-hmm. that i've been involved in so it's a it is a pity sometimes when people don't um value Irish even though it's just like you'd watch uh, you'd watch foreign films and mm-hmm. read subtitles so yeah. it's just a weird relationship Irish people have with Irish I think yeah. but it is not like watching foreign show uh, in a way because it's, it's the in a way it's one of the languages of this country mm-hmm. right yeah well it's a national language yeah 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 so we have to learn it in school and stuff, and mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's maybe part of the problem. Um, mm-hmm. Not part of the problem because I think we should have to learn it. But yeah, um, like I learned it, I knew it from a very young age, so it was never an issue. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's. Uh, but then audiences come and they're surprised. We've had good audiences in, and they've been surprised of, oh, it was really good. And it was in mm-hmm. Irish, and we read the English subtitles, and we still enjoyed it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's a different experience. But it's so important, right? Like, it's so important to keep writing plays or making shows or, like, writing books or making films or whatever type of culture with the language because you yeah. need to, like, find a way of making... continue the language, right? You don't want to I really think going. so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, like, well, I kind of feel like a bit of a fraud when I say I'm passionate about it because I do make work and I haven't made work in Irish. So I feel like a bit of fraud, but I, like... I will hopefully sometime but I I wish I think because I've experienced the kind of disappointments of being in good work in Irish and not getting the audiences or the response Mm. that it kind of deserves that you kind of go god well it's just going to naturally be a lot easier if it's in English (laughs) in every aspect but I I think it's incredibly important and when I hear that there's been work made in Irish I'm thrilled and I hopefully will do that myself Mm. um take that baton at some point and try and <laughs> try and do it because it is important that's the only way that the Irish actually will be in any way relevant and contemporary is if it's in if good Irish is made in the language I think mm-hmm. um on television film and because there's been some great stuff on mm-hmm. film and television in Irish but yeah and stages you rarely see it so yeah it's it's interesting because I feel like um um I feel like sometimes I think like holding on to a country's language very strongly um I struggle with that as like a very nationalist thing mm-hmm. and I think I feel like that um with Portugal yeah, yeah. a little bit where yeah. I'm like oh I really love Portuguese language but also like I'm totally up to like open it up or like yeah. let go of it a little bit yeah. um and like I think like I feel that on a on the opposite level uh being in Berlin as someone that doesn't really speak German and being like, oh, I feel really guilty that mm. I don't speak your language. So I think it's also something, it's always something that I kind of like weigh into plates and I can't really make up my mind about, which is mm. like, I feel like holding on to a language is something that is somehow quite a nationalist or a nationalist yeah. approach of things, which I don't agree, but also I don't want to see everyone, everything be like washed into yeah. English mm. because also that's <laughs> so problematic in yeah, so many other ways. Exactly. Um, so I think it's like a really interesting sort of like ground to start making work or discuss or whatever, which is like, like, I don't know, like, how do you feel about that? Or like anyone here feels about that? Like is propagating a language propagating a nation and the mm. idea of a nation state mm. and the power of a nation state mm. and like propagating division and like if we're talking mm. about finding some sort of unity like mm. are we just all going to revert to English because that's dire like yeah, yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> that is terrible. I don't be- I don't believe I don't believe in unity as uh from the prism of that everyone speaks the same talks the same engages mm. in the same thing so I think language is beyond nationalism and national identity in many ways because language is a point of communication and I think that it can exist without borders so one of the things that I 
find fascinating about traveling the world for instance i hate tourism i hate doing tourism <laughs> personally <laughs> but like i one of the things that i love to do when i'm traveling to other countries is to learn different languages and 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 getting to know people because language speaks so much about a specific person right mm. um and yes that has everything to do because that's the world that we live in with borders and how they've been constructed and how specific countries have come to exist um i think there is a separation between you being proud of a language and you being uh, proud of a nation or or mm. or, or, or so-called national identity for instance two things kind of go hand in hand um in a way but they also sep- they also can exist separately mm. um at least that's kind of my understanding of language in a way um i don't think that you suggest like you and when i say you I don't mean you andre as if like any any person um kind of saying um uh, uh, like the Irish language for instance and reverting back to the Irish language as a point of or either political discourse or making a piece of work is particularly a nationalistic thing because actually if you look at the contextualization of English the English language for instance across the world has been a language that has been broadcast across the world and seen as the, the main language of the world in many ways but that's to do with history of colonialism that yeah. 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 so it's so I think that Languages can uh, develop and can progress. And for instance, if we wouldn't have the type of colonial uh, uh, outputs that we still do have, so many people could suggest, for instance, that the languages that are still talked about, talked in Angola, for instance, uh, which goes hand in hand between Criollo and, and, and Portuguese, mm-hmm. uh, or the, the Brazilian Portuguese, for instance, um, have colonial roots, of course they do, but they can exist beyond that. And you can you can kind of go, no, this is the Brazil, this is the Portuguese from Brazil, and eventually it will become something else because it developed beyond its colonial uh, kind of heritage, put it that way. And I, but I don't think, yes, it has it has roots in nationalism, but I think it can it can go beyond that in many mm-hmm. ways. And I think that's something specifically when you're talking about contexts that have been historically oppressed because of colonialist or because of imperialist or because of other wars that happened for the purpose of capitalism or gain um, I think there's something quite powerful about people kind of reverting back to their language language and enforcing that language and kind of go no 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 this is the language that we're speaking here because there is a history of of imposition of another language that actually it was forced upon us it wasn't a a collaboration so I think yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was just like, I just think that there's something quite beautiful about holding on to a language because languages develop. And actually, if you enforce mm-hmm. another, an, another language on top, that's not development, that's yeah, I imperialism. Agree. I agree. No, exactly. Yeah, 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 I agree with that. So it appears you're still a political artist. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Um, so I suppose you spoke a little of like Michael Murphy, but in general, what are the artists that influence you? I suppose we don't really know any. I suppose we're quite ignorant to Portuguese yeah. um, theatre or even UK oh. theatre. I feel like we can be quite narrow in what we view and mm. um, quite specific. But are there any artists in Berlin or UK or even Portugal that mm. I suppose influence you or excite you? Like as in current artists? Current, or like living, dead. You go first. Who do we mention Portuguese by? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 there's a really true. good work being made in Portugal. That's very true. Uh, I was very influenced by the uh, kind of practices that I saw in the festival that I was telling you about mm. earlier on. So in that kind of festival, we had people like uh, Kotomini Shiwaki from, from Hong Kong who was an amazing artist who did very sound-based kind of um, work. So um, she would do things like, for instance, um, she would have a table full of very different props, very random props, like an apple or a mobile phone or anything like that. And she would, like, use them on the table. And it was literally, it looked quite mental because she was just, like, breaking things on the table for, like, half an hour. Mm. And everyone was sitting there kind of going, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and then what transpired, it was that she was recording all the sounds that she was making. And then she pressed play. 
and it basically it played all the sounds back and then she made this like live noir film uh, based on the sounds that she created Ooh. and it was like oh, wow. fantastic you know um, so she was she was really point of influence to me in terms of like how to make art that is not as immediate and that is you know kind of live mm-hmm. really live you know she was kind of just responding to the kind of things that she was making live on stage that was really point of influence to me uh, Francisco Marshall who's an amazing um, Portuguese choreographer um they did this amazing piece in the in the festival, which was uh, so the village where I grew up has a a castle on top, which is a really historical castle, and uh, he basically occupied all the towers of the of the castle, and he was an honest man. Would go in, you go to the to the center of the castle to the garden, and you sign up and you pick what you would uh, experience, and then they will tell you where to go. You go to a tower, you wait. And you go in and you'll be one performer uh, recreating some of his works from his career. It was like a greatest hits kind of thing. Mm. And you can go all across the castle and experience different things. And it was on one-on-one kind of level. That was really influential to me uh, because it created this idea, again, of liveness and things that happen between the audience member and the, and the performer in a way that it's like the audience member creates their own narrative according to what they're experiencing mm-hmm. rather than being dictated what to believe in or what to feel yeah. and that was really yeah it really kind of broadened my horizons about what performance can be or what theatre mm-hmm. can be yeah. um, in terms of English ones there's also well, many I came, to, I came I went to England because I thought oh you know I know about life performance now I want to go and See Shakespeare, and actually, when I realized, when I got there, I realized mm, it's not really what I want to know. Um, but there's people like uh, Force Entertainment, of course, mm. who yeah. are huge and everyone knows about them. Uh, but people like Gob Squad, for instance, who are Gob Squad are amazing. Yeah, they are fascinating. And do you know more about their work? Gob, no. Gob Squad. No, they are mean. based in Berlin, I think. They are. Half in Berlin, and half in the UK. Yeah. So the collective sort of yeah. divided. Mm. Yeah, they kind of do like these experiences as well, yeah. right? Like. Everything is a show, but it kind of also depends a lot on what the audience brings and the situation yeah. where they are, the context where they are. They're actually working with a lot of non-performers Yes. Now. So, like, in their work, yeah. they kind of do a call-out for people that are not usually yeah. performers to Ooh. kind of be in their work and mm. to work with them. Yeah. Um, or people like Lois Viva, for instance, yeah, yeah, yeah. who does... Like, I mean, my new show, Regnant, is very much influenced yeah. about Lois Viva's work with long table format. Um and then there's other like yeah. um, there's other European collectives like Shishi Pop mm-hmm. um, do really interesting mm-hmm. theatre yeah. work uh, like I would say kind of like slightly similar to God, God Squad mm-hmm. but um, in a slightly different way yeah um, I saw um, just to interject I went to Munich a few years ago on this residency thing and we were allowed to sit in on Shishi Pop's rehearsal but it was in the theatre so they had like an open audience but in the theatre mm. and it was this very technical piece it was based on Spring Awakening um, and very technical piece where they'd have these like morph bodies so they were all like half naked but would have like a sock over an arm and, and stuff to create one body out of like 20 bodies yeah. um, but it was really interesting to see the mechanics of the rehearsals at an early enough stage that it was not working yet because mm, yeah. <laughs> you could just see what you knew was going to be the amazing show at the end and you were witnessing it particularly, so they were creating this one body of this round person, but one woman's arm was just too short. So mm. they kept, there was a gap and they couldn't figure out. It was such a mundane thing of like, mm. oh, her arm's too short. That's just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> but you were sitting in this really grand theater watching this like little mistake that you knew, like it was kind of a privilege to see all the mistakes because yeah. you don't get mm. to see that. And you knew like the show was going to be amazing because mm. it was even amazing, the rehearsal. But just watching the mechanics of it being really shit for a yeah. little while was really yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think for me it's like I get really inspired when I see that um, collectives are working sort of horizontally. Because I think um, one of the best things that we can do now is kind of break down the hierarchies of like traditional theatre, of like director, mm. actor or writer, director, actor mm. or whatever. Um, so I find it really interesting. I mean, obviously I don't know... Um, exactly how those collectives work in a rehearsal room. I don't know how Shishi Pop works. I don't know how Gob Squad works. But I think um, 
when you work in a more devised setting or it looks like it's a more horizontal position where everyone is contributing creatively to the yeah. work, it's much more interesting. And that's um, yeah. what kind of like excites me a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know, I think in terms of like other artists, um, I'm very interested in people that explore sort of like becoming or fluidity because I think for me it ties a lot to identity and I'm not necessarily into the idea of making quite clear cut works about certain parts of my identity but rather about approaching it as the fluid thing that it is mm-hmm. um and I think I don't know like um Jeremy Wade is a really interesting choreographer based in Berlin he's originally from the US and he does a lot of work about um queerness and kind of like um um how to care for yourself and um syst- like building systems of care mm. Um, within late capitalism and especially from a queer perspective which I found really interesting and I think it's really fruitful and I think englobes all of those like fluid notions of identity and queerness and um, yeah Um, I also really enjoyed the work of um, my like I've had the luck of collaborating and um, she's a really close friend Liz Rosenfeld also Mm. based in Berlin um, from the US um, and she's like a filmmaker and performance artist um, and she all of her body of work is majorly looking into like queer ecologies mm-hmm. um, and uh, a lot working with like sex and porn um, and kind of like putting her body um, and her female body um, in more like traditionally sort of like gay male spaces which mm-hmm. I think is really important in a new dialogue um, in understanding queerness because a lot of queerness is so dominating by like white gay men mm-hmm. um, that it's really important to kind of like bring these other notions of queerness and especially mm-hmm. in different forms mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think in London also there's other people I mean like loads of people could mention I mean yeah. like <laughs> Project O Festival. Project Ho, definitely. Project Ho are doing really amazing yes. work. They're this um, duo of choreographers and dancers, yeah. Jamila Johnson Small and Alexandrina yeah. Hemsley. Um, and they do work about queerness and blackness. Yeah. Um, and also like Malik Nishad Sharp. Yeah. And they go by Marika's Cry Cry Cry. Yeah. And the work that they make. Um, yeah. And it's also like touching on like queer and black aesthetics um one of like um, recently that but, really kind of struck nerve and was for instance uh Ant Hampton just mm. I worked with him last year and he's based in Germany I think now is he yeah I think so I think he was based in um um Brussels before but now he's moved mm. anyway he does this thing he he does this kind of work that the audience kind of drives. There's a sort of a template for the audience to sort of engage with and then the outcomes of what the audience does is what mm-hmm. makes the narrative of it. And I think that's really fascinating. The project specifically that we worked on was um, part of this festival called Two Degrees Festival about climate change, but the work was basically a three-hour-long piece where um, about 48 kids um, under the, the between the ages of 7 and 12 would uh, have 12 minute um, um, short busts on stage where they would have a little headphone, headset, and then they would be like told what to say. And it was super simple. They, they were just sitting on stage in revolving chairs and they would just like relay exactly what they hear. Uh, and it was like crazy facts about the world, like really surprising shit about the world. Mm-hmm. And you would, it just kind of give you this or, this idea of like, fuck the, like we're all fucks you know in a way. <laughs> but because it was kids relaying that it kind of put you as an audience member in a position where yeah we're screwing these kids like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know guilt, yeah. yeah but there was like this mixture between guilt and joy at the same time that seemed really no joy because it was like a newer generation kind of looking at or at least looking at the world in a different way you know what I mean oh, like, mm. for, like it gave a, a perspective of urgency put it that way mm-hmm. uh, and there's some there's some joy in that yeah. in a way I think mm, cool <laughs> <laughs> you don't agree no I'm not saying I don't agree oh my god I don't want to say what I thought 
I just thought that was a giant, like, oh, we're fucking it up and it's just gonna all blow away and we're fucked. Yeah, I find, I find, I find the, like, I don't know, I just find the apocalypse really, really, really calming. Yeah. Oh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite excited for us to just mm. stop existing. So I just, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just thought you meant that, and I was like, oh, a sort of joy where you're looking at this kid, yeah. and you're like, oh, this is all fucked, and we're gonna die. And I was yeah, like, oh yeah, that's joyful. <laughs> well, yeah, but there is, a, there is something wrong in it because it provides uh, a way for you as an entertainment to look at what they're saying from mm-hmm. a different perspective, and it kind of, if it's, if it's an adult saying these things, you yeah. probably go. We heard it, mm-hmm. but yeah, because it's kids, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean. Like it's you kind of you try to take take another look at it. Yeah. So I'm really like I think I suppose like the artist that I'm to revert back to your question, um, the artists I'm most interested in and that I'm most interested by, I suppose, are artists who use the form of the theater or the artwork mm-hmm. as the driving force of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then I think that's really exciting. Um, because it, it, as an audience member, it's just it's more interesting. I find. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know? of course. Yeah. Well, before we die, is there any artist <laughs> that you're excited for your own work and in this year and the coming years that you're really excited to see? Our own work, or, or your own work, or any artist in twenty eighteen, um, upcoming things that you're excited to see? Oh, so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the dance festivals soon. Yeah. I'm excited to see some of the shows there. Yeah. Uh, in Dublin, the Dublin Dance Festival. Fringe Festival is always really exciting. Yeah. I've put in for it, so I don't know if it's going to happen, but <laughs> if it does, that'll be very exciting. Um, but it's always, the Fringe is my favourite time of the year in Ireland, for sure, uh, in terms of seeing new work and new artists, artists mm. um, and young artists and uh, people taking risks, I think, so I'm excited for that. Mm-hmm. Um I don't want to go abroad and see some more stuff abroad. Mm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what we were touching on earlier on. It's, it's like, like uh, think when you think about work or going to see work, like, yeah, yeah. go go internationally because yeah. it provides grounds for yeah. difference, right? Well, it's interesting. I was way there in Paris for two months in January, February, and mm. so I saw work over there and... It just sort of blew my mind off, but it's also, you have to remember that there's a different infrastructure in different yeah. places, yeah. so we don't have the yeah. infrastructure. But just in terms of the scale of what can be achieved yeah. in places like Paris because of the money was very, very exciting. If I'm really passionate about something that I think is wrong and needs to be debated, I will start that conversation. Mm. And then I'm always reticent about like, like I do it and then like it happens and people are engaging with it and then halfway through I'm like, oh shit. What if this reflects bad on me and I'll yeah. never get programmed ever, ever again? <laughs> just... But at the same time, it's like, fuck it. At the same time, it's like, I I don't have the means to tell everyone that I think is problematic or that, uh, or that, I've, or that made me have a bad experience directly that mm. that happened. Because there's just those mechanisms don't always mm. exist or are not always accessible. So I'm like, well, I'm going to put it out there. And if people react to it, then they'll react to it. And the person, if the person sees it or the company sees it, they can learn from it. Mm. Um, I think yeah. I'm quite similar, but it's also like, um, I hate confrontation. So, um, so do I. But, also like, but the thing is that I hate confrontation, but then the way that I react when I'm not thinking is like confrontation. Yeah. yeah. So what happens a lot to me is like, I will just say something and I totally won't gauge the effect that that's going to have. And then suddenly it's been like two hours and I'm like, oh fuck. I'm <laughs> but like then I'm in the middle and it's like, oh, just yeah. have to continue. Yeah. But you do though. It's your, I think... Like, sometimes things don't get related at all. And it's, in a way, as audience members and as practitioners as well, people who have stakes in um, the arts community, we have a duty to kind of voice concerns, right? (laughs) And if it actually reflects more on the people who are at the receiving end of those concerns, how they engage with it. Yeah. That's how I see it. And actually, if someone's not going to program my work because uh, they saw that I said something that was against their taste, even if I wasn't rude about it or anything like that, mm-hmm. then that's their problem. I think that's the thing. It's about, like, are you being rude when you're exposing that? Yeah. Or are you just doing it in a polite way? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No. Yeah, yeah we were an inspiration. 
we were interpreted by Colin's phone call. Um, <laughs> um, I can't even remember what we were talking about. We were talking we were about, about inspir- future things yeah, happening. Future things, things happening, the Fringe. Double yeah. Fringe yeah. Festival. Just about how much of a ride it is, I guess. Double Fringe? Yeah, that's yeah, great. It's great. Mm. Good festival. Um, yeah, I never experienced it. It's, it's really good. Yeah. There's a lot of diverse work. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Chris Nelson was the person he was friends mm-hmm. before, right? Yeah. He's now so Lift. Yeah. Lift, yeah. yeah. So it's Ruth McGowan now, so yeah. it's really exciting. Yeah. Lift's got some exciting works. Yeah. yeah. On. That's true. <laughs> That's really um, true. Um, what else? I mean, there's this really great festival in London, mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to be there, so come and say hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's called Femtopia, and it's focused on, like, women and kind of, like, trans femme um, artists. Um, and there's some really amazing artists coming from yeah. mostly the UK and some international artists. There's a really good artist coming from the US called Karen Finlay, mm-hmm. um, which is a, an amazing performance artist and musician and poet and so many things. Is that um, announced? Well, is that, that is announced. announced yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not just dropping comments. <laughs> <laughs> it was announced yesterday. I'm Exclusive. not it <laughs> <laughs> uh, But she is incredible. She did loads of work um, about the AIDS crisis um, in the 80s. And she was also like super influential yeah. in kind of like altering the way that like um, the US funding works for the arts. Um so she was like, there was this big thing, like the cultural wars in the US, um, when loads of artists got censored or didn't get funding because of the type of work they were doing. And she was in one of the four ones that kind of like, kind of sued. Mm. Um, as in like, oh, I didn't get funding because of this and we don't think this is right, so this should change. Yeah. Um, which is really incredible. Um, she's going to be in London on the 26th of May. Mm. Yeah. Um, so if people are around there, yeah. they should definitely come and see um, and it's going to be intense, but yeah. quite nice. Um, I'm excited about. I'm excited about a lot of people. <laughs> um, I'm seeing a lot of shows next month, actually. Um, I suppose uh, uh, Rachel Young is one that comes Rachel to my head. Uh, she's doing this piece called Nightclubbing, and it's based on a seminal album by Grace Jones mm. uh, called Nightclubbing as well. Mm. And she's kind of exploring what it is to be a, a black woman in contemporary culture through that mm. through that prism of Grace Jones's album. Uh, yeah, yeah. What are you gonna say? I, think I was going to uh, say the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just look uh, really passionate all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? There's a fantastic uh, uh, event going on in Brighton as part of the Brighton Festival uh, called uh, Brownton Abbey, which is a bunch <laughs> of black artists coming together and kind of creating a black collective of performance artists who are using the concept of Brownton Abbey and turning it on its head and kind of uh, thinking about privilege of you know the whole idea of Brownton uh, uh, not Brownton Abbey Downton Abbey <laughs> um, and flipping it and I think they're going to do uh, a one off um, um, event uh, it's not a performance it's sort of a set mm-hmm. of performances and DJs and all that so it's more like a night um, that's really exciting uh, but yeah there's a lot there's a lot of work out there that's amazing uh, Life Collision for instance there's yeah. some of my favourite artists at Life yeah. Collision this year you've got Selena Thompson who's a total yeah, every, that's darling. <laughs> everybody um, should go into Selena Thompson's yes. um, installation yeah, next week. Agree. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's called Race Cards, and it's uh, yeah about how perceivable people perceive black people. You know, <laughs> you know? Like, and it, it really yeah. is uh, un- unsympathetic. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically um, like, the yeah. way the work started is like, Selena was sitting in this room and writing cards. Yeah. I think it's a thousand yeah. questions that people have asked her or that are related to yeah. um I guess allyship in terms of like race and yeah. also about how it is to be um a black woman or yeah. um um and now it's like a full blown installation because you've written a thousand cards. Yeah. Um and then basically the the way that it works is that you go in and you can kind of like answer the questions in kind of like yeah. where is it on project? So kind of, project yeah project yeah um it's really really amazing yeah. I saw it like three years ago or yeah, two same. and a bit years ago yeah. and it's still like one of my favorite works same. and 
I don't know if you can still do this, but back then you could like take a card and take it home, and it's yeah. like mm. still in my wall. Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Last, I don't know if it's you like, can do I think, this I think one, I've got the one can... that is like mm. question ninety two, if I'm not wrong, and it's like, what does good alley ship looks like? Um, and it's I just I just I think everyone should go and see that work. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I agree. Um, what's else? Split bridges. Split bridges. Amazing, amazing American um, performance art duo. Quite at the forefront of feminist avant-garde performance yeah. mm-hmm. in America, uh, they are based between America and UK, and I would definitely recommend their work. Yeah, um, Life um, a love collision, love collision, yeah, and um, Stacey McKishi. Yes, I think it's going to be like super fun and also <laughs> like Stacey McKishi is amazing. Yeah, um, and also I'd say like um, there's a really big party on Saturday. Yeah, that's been. Um, curated and organized by the Trans Live Art Saloon and they're based in Dublin. Yeah. Um, and I think, like I said this earlier in the other long table that we we're in, but um, I think it's really amazing that Life Collision has just been like, oh, we're going to completely re- take ourselves out of this situation and give it to yeah. someone else that needs it. Yeah. Um, so basically Trans Live Art Saloon took over, taken over, I don't know if it's a project, I don't know what it is. Um, but basically they've like organized the last party and it's like all trans DJs and performers and it's, it's going to be really good. Amazing. Well, that all sounds like, obviously exciting. An hour show. An hour show. Come on. Yeah. 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 It's really exciting. Come. That's on Saturday from one o'clock. Till five. I'll be there yeah. on my second day. First, yeah. it's you can get in at yeah, every exactly. hour. <laughs> yeah, it's completely free. Uh, so all you need to do is book, and uh, yeah, you need to book because there's limited capacity. Yeah. Um, but it's gonna be free for everyone to come, and you get free alcohol, free food, and you get to chat about quite personal but important issues. Amazing. Yeah. Just yeah. treat yourself emotionally on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much. And um, this is our very you. first first date. Well, hey. And so to end with our little first date questions, <clears throat> would you like to see each other again? Yes, I'm coming yeah. Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you introduce Vanilla to your parents? And vice versa. Oh, uh, yeah, do you yeah, want to come cool. to Portugal? Yeah. yeah just come on, all of us in the summer. Like, my parents love Portugal. I haven't been since I was a kid. Yeah. You're always more welcome to come to Brighton as well. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Berlin. Yeah. It's fun. Oh, my God. You've this got is got the best day. thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Four trips. <laughs> Skyscanner.com. <laughs> 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 um, well, that was great. Um, thank you to Zav, Andre and Fanula um, for joining us. Um, and Hugh Cresswell for assisting us on sound. Um, this was produced by Colm Summers and Felicity Theatre. Um, and thank you, Colm, for the delicious meal. Yeah, it was yeah, lovely. 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 Appreciate it. Um, if you want to get in touch with us about appearing on the show or to talk about any of the work raised today, contact hello at felicity.productions or hit us up on all social media. Um, and don't forget to check out the upcoming work by Zav and Andre this Saturday, Live Collision and Fanila. And I'm sure Fanila is going to be around for forever also bringing you Sidaria at Life Collision on Sunday the 29th and Love Alamo which I'm hot. Um, on which Vanilla is also in um, on June 4th to 16th and we are super excited Way. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Adios. Signer. <laughs>